Go ahead and turn to John chapter 13, please. God, I pray in these next few minutes that you'll pour me out like a drink offering. Pray that you'll move me out of the way and spend me for the sake of the truth. Lord, I pray that we will not tickle ears, but that we'll expose the truth and that the people of God will embrace it, gnaw on it, dine on it, whatever violence it does to whatever we've ever known or whatever we think ought to be. We pray that we think and understand and reason and respond as we are shaped from this book. Lord, I just pray that you will guard my mouth. Pray that you will guard my tongue from speaking anything that is not the truth. Pray that in a moment of zeal that you will guard me from spouting off something that may not be right. Lord, I pray that the truths of the gospel will be savored and enjoyed in these next few minutes. First of all, I pray they'll be exposed. Mm, just beg for that, Lord. Your design. Not what we think it ought to be, but your design. Lord, I pray that we can find assurance according to this Bible. Lord, I just uh, turn these next few minutes over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today we are actually going to go back and do much of what we did last week in order for us to consider... Uh, an issue of assurance. It's not preaching the same exact sermon, but we've got to do some things that we did these last few weeks. These last few weeks we've been considering Judas. And in some amazing, weird way, this guy that has really just kind of been um, easy to dismiss in exposing some things about Judas, we've come to have to reckon with some things. This Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to put these things on the board about Judas. We've been doing these last few weeks. This imaginary board that we've got up here is kind of like a crime board you've seen on some of these shows where they put the bad guy's picture up top and they start throwing facts on the board and they try and piece it all together and understand it. This last week, we introduced a new character. His name was Peter, and we contrasted to the two of these, Judas and Peter. We let the facts stand for themselves. We tried to piece them together and understand them. And we walked away with a distinct contrast between the two of these. That's what we're going to do again today, and then we're going to go the direction of assurance. Now, before I begin to read this wor the word this morning, before I, we're going to go right back into John chapter 13, and I'm going to read almost the entire chapter except for one little chunk. And then we're going to read some sections from some other books and even another chapter within John, two other chapters within John. Before I go there, I want to encourage you to recognize I'm not reading from the phone book. I'm not reading Shakespeare. I'm not reading Thoreau. I'm not reading the textbook. I'm reading the living Word of God. So I beg you, do not go to a place where you say, oh, okay, we already got this. You will never already get this. This book is living. This truth is not exhaust. We can engage it week 
after week. I could spend the rest of my preaching ministry preaching from John chapter 13. That's how incredible this book is. So let's go there together. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew... Well, let me encourage you to do something before I continue. This will help you. If you're like me, you like to kind of get a check in the block. Okay, I got this. I got this. I want to move on. But the way to re-engage something that you think you've engaged before is to climb back into the story. So as I read this John chapter 13, and as we consider Judas, we throw those things back up on the board, and then we consider these details about Peter, what I want to encourage you to do is feel the sweat of a bunch of dudes sitting around having dinner together. I know everybody in this room has been sweaty at some time. You know what that feels like. You know what it smells like. Smell it in these next few minutes. Feel the water as Jesus washes your feet. Sit there at that table and you'll walk away with something pretty awesome this morning. Feel the water. Feel the weight of the money bag that Judas carries. Feel that weight. Feel his heart race as he runs off to the temple to give this back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as he throws it at their feet. Feel that. Take that in. See the face of the maiden girl whenever Peter denies Christ the first time. Hey, aren't you with? I'm not. Hear the cock crow. Feel the raw rope of the noose as it goes around Judas's neck. Or, hopefully, better yet, feel the taste of fresh-cooked fish melt in your mouth as you're standing by your Lord by the Sea of Tiberias as you're restored. That's how we want to read this Bible these next few minutes. Climb into it. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's hours from the cross. Hours. Walked with these guys for three years. Lived 30-something years. And he's hours from the cross. And he knows it. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, he's at midnight on his ministry. This Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, Pete, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, All right, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, guys, before it takes place, that when it does take place and unfold, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, likely the writer of this book. John, John doesn't ever refer to himself as identify himself. It's kind of this first person or third person sort of thing. I'm messing up my English. The one who Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after that, he had taken the morsel. Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, after eating at the Lord's table for three years, after being in the sweetest ministry that's ever existed before or since, he immediately went out. And it was night. Details on Judas. First of all, we know that the The devil had already decided that he was going to use Judas. He had already made up his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. Judas had a big bullseye on his back, and the devil put it there. Put it on the board, right under Judas' picture. We know that Jesus washed his feet along with the rest of the disciples. Yet we know that Judas was not cleansed from that foot washing. He was not cleansed from walking with Christ for three years, from being right up next to the sweetest ministry that's ever been. He was not cleansed from that. And he would not be cleansed from the work of the cross that happens the next morning or the next day, finished about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, nor would he be affected by that empty tomb on the third day because he was not clean. We know that he had eaten the bread of the ministry for three years. We know that his betrayal troubled Jesus, although Jesus knew it from the very beginning. It's a picture of an incredibly tender God, this Jesus, that he's troubled over Judas betraying him. We know that while Judas knew who would betray him, the other disciples didn't even suspect him. I love the thought. Old Judas has been easy to dismiss over the years because I've just always envisioned this guy to look like Sam Cobra, to wear black, to have a scowl on his face, and to talk like a pirate. Arg! I'm going to get that Jesus yet. 
For three years, he's just been easy to dismiss, just imagining over the whole ministry that that's what he's been like. But the other disciples didn't suspect him. He didn't talk like a pirate. He talked just like them. He looked just like them. In fact, he may have been one of the most trusted among them. He was the treasurer. He carried the money bag. We know that Satan entered Judas, and Jesus told either him or Satan. We don't know who he's talking to necessarily. When he's looking at him, he says, go ahead and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And then we know that Judas left the table and that it was night. He left the table of the ministry. He left a context where he is supping with God. (laughs) He left that table. He walked away from the ministry of the Lord. He walked away from the people of God. And it's likely that we can all think of people just in a few minutes who've done the very same. They've walked away from the table of relationship. They've walked away from the table of family. They've walked away from the table of the ministry or the faith altogether. That's what Judas did. Right here. And then in the wee hours, he shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane, this intimate place where Christ is praying, speaking with his Father, hours before he goes to the cross. He shows up there with priests, Pharisees, and soldiers to apprehend Christ, and he betrays him with a kiss. Put it all on the board. Now let's consider Peter. Move to this other board over here, like Judas. Peter is also a disciple. He's chosen for, to follow Christ earlier on in the ministry. Turn to uh, John chapter 6. I want to show you some other things about Judas. We're going to throw him up on the board expeditiously. That means quickly. It's not a preacher word. It's just a good word. John chapter 6, man, what a great chapter. This Bible is all good, but I'm just going to tell you, John chapter 6 is full of some pretty controversial stuff. My understanding of salvation and the gospel and the faith was turned on its ear in John chapter 6. Everything changed for me in John chapter 6. The character of the ministry of this church changed in John chapter 6. It wasn't about an agenda that anybody had. We were just moving through the book of John verse by verse. We got to John chapter 6, and we had to deal with some pretty controversial stuff. I'm not even going to deal with it this morning, but if you haven't really gnawed on John chapter 6, gnaw on it. And you're going to have to be, you will be confronted with passages that will make very little of you and make much of God and His design. will put His sovereignty on display, and they will be quite troubling for many. And in fact, they were quite troubling here in John chapter 6, verse 65. Jesus has just said, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. You've got to have permission from the Father to come to the Son. It's got to be granted by the Father. That's a troubling truth. It sounds like somebody's preaching some sort of ism or ist, like they've got an agenda, but it's right there in red. And in verse 66, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Yeah, I kind of don't like that sort of gospel because it's so deterministic where's my choice in all that i understand that because i had to reckon with the same very issues in john chapter six but in his context many of the disciples left they said i don't like that gospel anymore and let's see what happens next jesus turned to the 12 and he says do you want to go away as well looks like my church just got a lot smaller do y'all want to leave too the 12 of y'all 
And Simon Peter, we can put this up on the board, right under the fact that he's a disciple too. We could put it up on the board. Simon Peter responds, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter, just hours before, saw Jesus high-stepping on the high seas. Walking on the water. Just not even 24 hours earlier, he fed multitudes with loaves and fishes. And Peter doesn't say, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You've got all these great tricks. You can feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fishes. It's remarkable. And you can walk on water. Where else are we going to go? He says, no, you have the words of eternal life. I don't even care about your tricks, Jesus. I'm marveling at your truth. I'm marveling at what you're saying, Jesus. That's what impresses me. Put it on the board. That's what's driving Peter. Then in John chapter 13, the passage we just read, I'm not going to read it again because you remember some of these details, some other things, additional things we can put on the board about Peter. Is when Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, "Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) I've got too much respect for you, Jesus. I revere you too greatly for you to wash my feet. Many of you can understand how you would feel if someone you had incredible respect for came to you and said, hey, I want to clean your toenails. I, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll get somebody that I don't care. I may pay somebody to do that. I don't want you to do that because I respect you so much. I don't want to see you stoop to that. So we can put that on the board that Peter had great reverence for Christ. We can expect that and discern that from the passage. We can also put on the board that whenever Jesus says, no, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. He says, okay, well, in that case, here's my head. (laughs) In that case, here's my hands. In that case, is there a bubble bath around here that I can dive into? If that's what it means to have a share with you, I'm in. So we can also put on the board that he's not only is, is he a disciple, he's after Jesus not for his tricks, but for his truth. We can put it on the board that he has great reverence for Christ. And we can also put it on the board that he has incredible zeal for Christ. Okay, wash my head and my hands, please. Because I want to have a share with you. Then we pick up reading in verse 36 of chapter 13. This little section in here, verses 31 through 35, that I haven't read is where we're going last week for our last Sunday in the book of, uh, or in, in John chapter 13. Jesus has just shared with them a new commandment, but he's also said, I'm going someplace you, can't, you guys can't follow. So Peter, being the outspoken one that he is, he asks the pregnant question. There in verse 36, I just love it. He says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? For three years you've been talking about going someplace. You've been talking about your hour's not here. You've All these things that you've been pointing to, it's just been this big mystery. And here, the last few days, you've really been talking about it a lot. And you're saying you're going someplace that we can't go. Okay, I, out with it. Where are you going? <laughs> That's the question that he asked. And Jesus answered him. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, Peter. But you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. You just don't even know how much I love you, Jesus. I mean, deep down inside, Jesus, I wish you could see in here. I got such love for you. You just don't even know what I would do for you, Jesus. You just don't even know. 
And Jesus answered him. He says, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, zealous one, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So put it on the board. Peter has such zeal for him. He has such reverence. He says, Jesus, you just don't even know how much I love you. I'd do anything for you. But also put it on the board that Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Put it on the board. Then in John chapter 18, let's see what happens. John chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus has been apprehended. He's been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been taken into custody. He's going to the high priest. He's going through those series of trials, those wee hour in the early morning trials. It says in chapter 18, verse 15, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, uh, um, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am not, scary maiden girl. I am not, not me. You have me confused with someone else. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now pick up in verse 25, he's still standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not really. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Just like Jesus said, before the rooster crowed, Peter denied him three times. Judas betrays this Jesus with a kiss, and Peter denies him three times with his mouth. Now turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at the rest of the story for Judas. We'll come back to Peter in a moment. We're going to put the last little facts on the board for Judas. And then we're going to actually draw a red line, a red circle and a line through his face because he dies here in these last few minutes. And that's where we're going. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind. Huh? Little late, Judas. He changed his mind. The word in the Greek there, you don't have to remember this, beyond maybe about five minutes, because it's going to come up again in about five minutes. It's not like the special trivia that will give you special access to anything in heaven, but, and it's not even really that cool of a word. It's the word metamelomai. You'll see it contrasted with something else here in a few minutes. It means he changed his mind. Metamelomai. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it to yourself, or see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. After betraying Jesus with a kiss, Judas is overwhelmed with guilt, 
and regret metamelamai, and he returns the money and he offs himself. While he swings from his self-made noose, Peter is lying to the maiden girl and to the servants, and the cock crows. Now, let's look at the rest of the story for Peter. Turn to John chapter 21. It's one of the sweetest passages in our Bible. If you've ever wronged the living God, if you've ever sinned against God, you should enjoy this passage. John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, this is after Christ's resurrection, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you, Peter. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him with the answer that all fishermen give when they've caught no fish. No! And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, likely John, said to Peter, Pete, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you guys have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net would not, was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now listen to this sweet interchange. These next few minutes, you just we can't see the nonverbal communication, but I just can't help but imagine that Jesus didn't look over at Peter and say, Come here, Pete. Come over here, I need to talk to you. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. By this time, while Judas' body is rotting in a field, Peter is restored on a seashore 
by his Lord over a fresh fish breakfast. Put it on the board. The difference between these two guys, this Judas and this Peter, wasn't that Peter ate his Wheaties and the Judas ate uh, candy. The difference between these two and their very distinct outcomes, death by his own doing, restoration by the Lord, wasn't that Judas came from a troubled home and that Peter came from a nice intact one. It wasn't that Peter read books and that Judas watched TV. (laughs) That'd be good, wouldn't it? It wasn't that one was in public school and one was homeschooled. Those things are not the determinant for whether or not people stay at the table or whether they leave the table. That's not the ultimate factor in whether or not one dies from regret, which is what Judas did or whether one is restored over a fish breakfast. It's not the externals that differentiate the outcomes, and it's not some inherent goodness in one over the other. The singular difference between the journeys and outcomes from one person to the next, from one Judas to one Peter, is God's sovereign choice. Turn over to John chapter 13, verse 18. I want you to read this passage again. Jesus has just charged them with washing feet. He says, blessed are you if you do this to each other. And then in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I know whom I've chosen, and his name is Peter, and the rest of you. And I know who I haven't, and his name is Judas. The determinant, the difference between outcomes between Judas and Peter was not that one ate a good diet and one didn't. It's because God's sovereign election, God chose Peter and not Judas. I realize that as some of you hear that language, you might think, man, that really makes me uncomfortable. Frankly, it's the very same language of John chapter 6 that made a bunch of the disciples say, I'm out of here. The very same language that portrays this big, sovereign God that is in control over all things. And it's also the language of our Bibles from front to back. Right here in John, John chapter 15, just a page over. Look at it just briefly. John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, you did not choose me. That's what we think, is it? I chose Jesus this day. He says, no, you didn't choose me. He says, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Look down two verses. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own but because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Those aren't taken out of context, believe me. It's all over our Bibles. 
God chose Israel among all nations of the world. Even Peter, this very Peter that was restored with a mouthful of fish, says in 1 Peter, he says, we're a chosen nation. We're a royal priesthood. We are a people for his own possession. We are a new Israel. This is God's redemptive pattern. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, identifies those who are with Christ as the chosen and the faithful. I realize that this teaching is difficult. It was much more amplified last week. If you weren't here last week, that's what I've been so troubled about is this sermon. A sermon needs to be standalone because someone might step in for the first time. But I urge you, this is kind of part B of last week. I urge you, if you're really, really troubled right now, like, i got to jettison this, listen to last week. Just listen to it. And then if you think it's not true, then jettison it. This teaching of God's choice and this word that in so many circles is kind of a dirty word, election, it's in our Bibles, is so underdeveloped that a large portion of the contemporary church that we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and if you preach it or you teach it, then you start thinking, you're teaching an ism or an ist or you got an agenda. And you go, wait a second, it's just the next verse. I will tell you from last week, last week's message made for some pretty uncomfortable weeks or days for a few folks this week. And I really think it's a lot of those folks, the folks that are really, really paying attention. And right now this week, we're in a period of time where people's paradigms are being shattered and broken. Maybe decades old paradigms. I had them too. I know what violence something like this does to everything that maybe you've always been taught. And while I cherish where I come from, I look back and this was void my background too. Some paradigms are being broken. And I realize as we consider Judas that Jesus was easy to dismiss before these last few weeks. But right now he's not. When you see Judas and you really consider some of these details about Judas, you have to consider what he must have been like. And when you do, then it's cause for alarm. Because he didn't look like Sam Cobra and he didn't talk like a pirate. He looked just like you and me. I don't know that at any point in the ministry he's thinking, I'm going to get this guy. <laughs> we can't know his mind, we can't know his heart, but I can't help but imagine that he was sincere. He was called to follow Jesus just like the rest. He followed Jesus just like the rest. For three years, he heard the preaching, he saw the miracles, and he sat at the feet of Jesus with the 11 others. And he must have looked just like them. I don't see pictures of him being as zealous as Peter. <laughs> I don't know that anybody's as zealous as Peter. But I do think that he had perfect attendance at all the disciple functions. When I was a kid in choir growing up, our church choir, we had these things that you would get if you had perfect attendance over the course of the kind of the calendar, the school year, I guess, not the calendar year, the school year. And you would get a little statue of Bach or Beethoven or Chopin. And they had different colors. They had silver and white and gold. I bet some of y'all had your versions of those. Maybe even the same thing. 
And if you had perfect, man, I had a row of them over my bed. And it was my goal to get a new one each year, man. It was awesome. Chopin, Tchaikovsky, all these guys, man, I'm putting them up there. And I just can't help but imagine that Judas didn't have a row of those. Perfect attendance in all the disciple choir functions. We considered last week that the real difference between these two was not what you see on the outside. This one betrayed Christ. This one denied Christ. This one had a bullseye on his back from Satan. This one asked Jesus, said, I want to sift this Peter like wheat. And God gave him permission to do it. He had a bullseye too. The difference was not what you see on the outside. It was not their upbringing. It was not their education. It was not their diet. The real difference between these two was God's sovereign choice. And it made a few people ask this week this question. It's like, okay, if I can go to that place, maybe for the first time where I'm seeing God's choice and I'm seeing how he operates, I'm seeing his redemptive pattern, how do I know I'm not Judas? It's a pretty good question. Can I be assured that I'm Peter? That's really what I want to get at. Tell me, help me with that. I used to think that I was Peter because I could look in the front of my Bible and there's the the date, time, and hour that I was baptized and it's signed by my pastor. So I think I'm assured from that, but now I'm looking at that and I'm going, Judas may have had that too. (laughs) Sitting right next to his row of little bitty statues. And I'm going, wait a second, my, my whole reference for assurance is kind of being disassembled. Man, I, these last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this Sunday, there are so many passages on assurance. And they all have to do with this, this moving, living, organic, ongoing expression. And they have nothing to do with some point in time, some emotional decision. I'm about to show you that here in a moment. And they have everything to do with a bunch of ING sort of expressions. But we're just going to look at one passage. We're going to look at one of many. Now, the others I'm going to help you with in the Shepherd's Guide this week. If you've never worked a Shepherd's Guide, this will be a good week to start. Because I'm going to reckon with those things this week. But this morning, we're just going to deal with one passage on assurance. And what you're going to see as this passage unfolds is you're going to see Judas explained. And you're going to see Peter explained. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. This, I told Scott earlier when we were in the office. I said, man, I think I'm more troubled over preaching this message from this point on than any message that I've preached in five years. Not because it's controversial, because we haven't had controversial sort of messages before, but just because it's difficult. You have to use all your faculties. If you're thinking about lunch, or you're thinking about somebody's hairdo, or wishing you'd worn your bigger shoes, or I don't know what you'd be thinking about. I, I can think about the things that I thought about as a kid or a young man, and it, who knows? But man, if you engage this with all your faculties, then you will engage something that's really rich. And you'll walk away with a picture of assurance that's a biblical picture. But it's difficult. So let's engage this. Let me give you a little bit of context. We have in our Bibles two letters to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. That's why they're titled 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. There's actually four letters to the Corinthians. Possibly five. 
There's a first letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. And it's referenced in 1 Corinthians, that previous letter that I wrote to you. Maybe in that letter, Peter shared with the church at Corinth about his collection that he's taken up for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, put Judas and Peter aside. We'll come back to them in a minute. Maybe he's sharing with them, hey, I'm taking up a collection for all these poor believers over in Jerusalem. We don't know what the context or what the substance of that letter was. We just know that there was a first letter because it's referenced in 1 Corinthians of his previous letter. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter to the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, there's some things that unfold there that tell us a little bit about the Corinthian church. In this second letter, this really, in my Bible, is the 1 Corinthians, we start to see signs of problems in the church in Corinth. These guys are focused on these weird gifts. I mean, they are overly emphasizing some, what are called sign gifts. And they're de-emphasizing the real substance gifts. And that's dealt with in around chapter 13 of the famous love chapter, kind of surrounding that. But there's also in this first letter to the church at Corinth, there's also an indication that they were pretty tolerant of some serious wickedness in their church. For in in fact, what happened was this young man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. He had his father's wife. And Paul is like, man, that's some wicked stuff. You got to get that joker out out of that church. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. That can't be tolerated. And he deals with them very forcefully in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I mean, he almost calls them ticks. (laughs) I mean, it's almost that aggressive. I mean, he deals with it. And then after this 1 Corinthians letter, which is really the second letter, okay, you got to kind of put this in your mind, there's a third letter that we don't have either, and it's called the severe letter. And it's called the severe letter, which I think is really funny because 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is pretty severe. So if this letter that we don't have was really severe in contrast to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it must have been downright raw. And it may be why it's not in our Bible. Maybe Paul did it in the flesh. I've done that. Whatever the case, here in 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter to Corinth, In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, Paul references their response to the severe letter. Okay, I hope I've explained that. You might have to go back and listen to it on the recording or get a copy of my notes or ask me afterwards, and I'll try and explain it to you again. There's four letters. The first letter we don't have. The second letter is 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 1 Corinthians. The third letter is the severe letter, which we also don't have. The fourth letter is 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 refers to the severe letter. Now, we don't know all the details of the severe letter, but we get the sense that he dealt with a couple things. He dealt with sin in the church even more aggressively. Potentially, maybe the same sin of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where this dude's sleeping with his mom-in-law. He's also dealing with his authority as an apostle because people have snuck in and said, Paul ain't all that. He's saying, you need to hear what I'm saying. And apparently he was pretty severe and hard with them. And this letter is lost. So then here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he's dealing with how that letter was received. A guy named Titus had that letter in his pocket or his satchel, whatever. He shows up to the church in Corinth and he says, here's the severe letter. So a guy named Titus was there to walk through it with him. 
And Titus came back to Paul with a report. And this is what Paul is referring to right here. He's going to reckon, or he's going to address how they handled that severe letter. How they did with the beating that he gave them. Listen to what happens, verse, starting in chapter 7, verse 6. It says, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, coming, by the coming of Titus. Paul was going through some severe affliction, and Titus came to him with some good news about how they received this severe letter. It says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted you, or he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This is Paul writing. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, Remember that severe letter, that real beating? He may have called them ticks or worse. Even though I made you grieve with that letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it then, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. What Paul is saying is, man, having written that hard letter to you, man, that kept me up at night for a while. Because I wondered, should I have done that? Could I have said it more gently? Could I have been a better shepherd in how I handled that? He regretted that severe letter that he wrote to the Corinthians until he heard how it was received. It grieved them initially, but then things changed. In verse 9, it says, As it is, Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. I didn't get a kick out of making you guys upset. He says, I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. Huh? Repentance via grief. Repentance via a beating. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now listen to verse 10. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Metamelamai. Whereas Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what punishment. I'm going to unpack this for you just briefly. This is where we're going to end today, but I want you to see it. This is the most important, this is the, the marrow of the sermon. It's just taken a while to get to the nougat. Paul is considering in these words how the church has responded to this severe letter. And it's so strong that he at points regretted sending it. And the letter could have been received in one of two ways. Worldly grief that ends in death or godly grief that ends in repentance and life. And here's what he does. First of all, he deals with the worldly Regret, regret, and that word there is the word metamelamai. It's the very thing that Judas experienced when he took that bag of money. You remember you felt the weight of it earlier, and he came in there and he threw it at the Pharisees' feet. That was regret, dude. That was passion behind that. That was insincere and incredible feelings. Extreme regret in gathering that loot and bringing it to the Pharisees. Extreme passion and emotion in throwing it at his feet. It's worldly grief. extreme worldly grief as he ran from the temple 
I don't know if he ran or not, but as I see him throwing that money back, money at the Pharisees, I would have run. And as he ran off to find a rope, and as his fumbling, shaking hands tie that rope, there's extreme regret, extreme emotion, extreme sincerity. And he's taking that rope and he's tying it. Extreme worldly regret as he found a tree and a ledge. And as he put that noose around his neck and he put the thing right there on the side. And as he put his toes right up to the edge of that ledge. And then as he just flung himself off that ledge. We don't even know how, how, that's how it operated, but he hung himself. There's extreme regret in that. And that's worldly regret. That's worldly grief worldly regret and whatever this man was or wasn't however easy he is to dismiss imagine him like Sam Cobra that talks like a pilot a pirate which I think is wrong whatever this guy was or wasn't I believe he must have been quite passionate and quite feeling and quite sincere I've been asking people all week if they've ever known anybody that killed himself and everybody that I've talked to you know it's anecdotal I don't know everybody that's killed themselves, but I know a handful, about four or five people over the years, friends in many cases, who've killed themselves. And as a rule, at least as far as the people that I know, in every case, they weren't happy-go-lucky. They weren't carefree. <laughs> they were very, very passionate people. They were very, very feeling people. They were very emotional people. And in Judas, I see this very same thing. I see extreme grief. I see passion. I see regret. I see gobs of tears gushing down off his face as he's tying the rope. Maybe the tears are falling on that rough rope. But his regret and his grief ended in what? death because it was worldly regret and worldly grief and the reason it ended right there western minds be repulsed but bible truth be exposed was because he wasn't chosen because he wasn't god's there's another guy that went through a similar thing a guy named esau Romans chapter 9 differentiates between these two guys, these two brothers that before, while they were still in the womb, before they either, either one of them ever did anything good or anything bad, two boys named Jacob and Esau, that God chose Jacob and it says that he hated Esau. Does that mean he hated Esau? I don't think it means he hated him any more than Jesus hated the rich young ruler as he walked away and he rejected the truth because he wouldn't go sell everything. In fact, it says Jesus loved him. I think it's hyperbolic, hyperbole. That is extreme in contrast to the love for Jacob that it's as if Esau was hated because he wasn't chosen. And this same Esau says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, just listen to it. Don't turn there. I just want you to hear this. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says, Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Many of you know the story. He went out hunting. He comes in. He's hungry. Anybody who's hunted before knows you get really hungry when you're hunting. He comes in. He's hungry. And there's Jacob. He's in the tent. 
He's making some stew, red stew, red stew, in fact. And he's making that stew, and it smells good, lentil soup. It's like, oh, man. And he says, hey, Esau, want some soup? And Esau says, yeah, man, that sounds great. He says, okay, you got to give me your birthright. Esau says, whatever, dude, let me have some soup. It says he despised his birthright. And this Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of red soup, it says, you know afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. This is from Hebrews. It says, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Man. Worldly grief ends in death. And the reason that's all it was is because he was not chosen. Jacob was. It says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I chose, Esau I didn't. Peter I chose, Judas I didn't. Tears and sincerity do not make Esau the Lord's any more than it makes Judas's tears and extreme regret saving. Many of you can think about someone having a very emotional experience when they see their guilt before the living God, but if it just stays there, that's worldly regret. That's no different from what Judas had. It's no different from what Esau had, though he sought it with tears. If you want to find assurance in tears and regret and an emotional experience, you've got to realize that you cannot do that. Esau wept, and I don't know that Judas wept, But I wouldn't be surprised as he tied that noose and put it around his neck. Regret plus grief plus sincerity do not equal salvation. Here in 2 Corinthians, he exposes what true repentance looks like, what godly grief looks like. Because he says, this is how you guys responded to my severe letter. With godly grief. That's some evidence in and of itself. Whenever God's leadership is pretty strong and confrontational with his people and the people rally. The people may visit a place of, of, of grief first, but then they rally. And that grief turns to repentance. But here's some characteristics of true repentance, of godly grief. He exposes it right here. The first thing in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is earnestness. The next thing is eagerness to clear yourselves. The next thing is indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. And I see all those things in Peter. I see them. Earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. I see him in Peter. This Peter that denied his Lord must have been heartbroken because I hear it in the words, let's just go fishing. He hadn't fished in three years. He left that life. He wasn't a fisherman anymore. He left his boats. He was a fisher of men. And here at this hour, this hour, what it must have been a terrible time of despair and heartbreak. He says, let's just go fishing. I don't think that's any old fishing trip. I hear heartbreak and despair in that. He may have been experiencing some indignation with himself. We don't know that for sure. He may have been gravely disappointed in how he denied his Lord. Maybe he was disgusted with himself as he saw the maiden girl's face. As she's saying, aren't you with him? 
Maybe he's thinking, I just, I am a dirty scoundrel. As he's hearing that cock crow over and over and over again. Indignation with himself. And his sin. And unlike Judas, you want assurance, people? Unlike Judas, Peter didn't run from God's people when he sinned. He was at least with the believers. Now, they did go fishing. (laughs) But at least he stuck with God's people. And when they figured out who it was on the shore, that seashore that day, that Jesus, what did he do? He flung himself out of the boat toward Christ. That's what differentiates repentance from regret, from worldly regret and godly regret, from worldly grief and godly grief is godly grief flings itself Christward. And that's what Peter did. This says so much about a contrast between Peter and Judas. While Judas is fleeing himself off a ledge with a noose around his neck, our Peter is fleeing himself Christward with a hundred-yard swim in zeal to see how fast he can get to his Lord. That's repentance. You want assurance? Tears don't cut it for me. The question is, do you fling yourself Christward? Do the, do the sheep want to know if you're a sheep? That's the wool of being a sheep. Are you flinging yourself Christward? Not if you sin, but when you sin. As he flings himself out of the boat, it's a picture of earnestness and an eagerness to clear himself. I see in Peter, I see fear as he hustles around to obey his Lord. Jesus says, hey, grab those fish. Okay, yes, let me grab some fish. 153 of them. He's dragging them over. Whatever you say, Jesus, get some fish. He says, I'm on it. I see longing in his desire to be reconciled. I just can't imagine that Peter ate much fish until he and Jesus were square. You know, they ate first. If I'm Peter, I'm just thinking, you just kind of stand there going... That fish looks good, but I'm longing to be reconciled with my Jesus. Now, after they were restored, I bet he tore up some fish. I see zeal in a 100-meter swim or 100-yard swim to the seashore, and I even see punishment. You've seen it in the truly repentant, maybe, where they're saying, hey, I'll take my licks. I'll take the punishment. Whatever it takes. If I have to be punished to be reconciled, if that's part of it, to take the consequences of my sin, then sock it to me. I want it. I'll take it because I long to be restored with you, Daddy. I long to be restored to you, teacher. I bet you've seen repentance before. And this desire for punishment is characteristic. These things that we see in Peter, these things that Paul saw in the church at Corinth was a picture of godly grief and repentance. It's grief turned Godward. That's what true faith is. That's what true repentance is. Judas and Peter might have both shed tears. They might have both had long faces. They might have both been very sincere, which I believe they both were. But the truly repentant fling themselves Christward. One passage I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts. Remember David, David sinned against the Lord. And he murdered Uriah. And he took Bathsheba. He wrote Psalm 51. This is likely, I'm sure, after Nathan said, You're the man. David flings himself out of the boat. 
Christward. Listen to these words. It says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, I hear earnestness. I hear an eagerness to clear yourself. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's grief turned Godward. That's godly repentance. That's godly grief. David is flinging himself out of the boat. He's swimming the hundred yards to get to God. Wash me. I know you want assurance, man. I want to. I realized last week it may be troubling for some to hear your pastor say, I I think I'm saved. (laughs) Huh? If you're not saved, man, is anybody? That's the way you think about your pastor. Everybody hold on. Man, I realize that's troubling. I I don't share that as for a shock factor. The more and more I study, the more and more assured I am in his ability, the more and more informed I am about my true condition, the more and more confident I am that he would take a foolish one like me to confound the wise. (laughs) Because I see my foolishness. I see my weakness. And the more and more my hope is planted squarely and only and completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ and God's sovereign election. The very thing that many people say, man, my assurance has just been disseminated through this sort of truth of God choosing. That's where assurance comes from. Because if it's up to you, man, stay awake at night. If it's up to your performance, did you pray that prayer just right? Man, stay awake at night. Man, I sleep good. Trusting that God is able, that God is the saver through and through. I want you to have assurance, but I want you to have it in the right things. Do you flee God's people when you sin? Do you run away from God's people like Judas? Does your sin leave you in despair until maybe the pain is gone? Or... Do you stick with God's people? Maybe with an occasional fishing trip. Do you stick with God's people? And consistently, are you characterized by flinging yourself Christward? If your sin sends you Christward in earnestness, with eagerness to clear yourself, with indignation at what you've done to the name of Jesus, with fear of the Lord, with longing for restoration, with zeal for His name and His fame, and with a willingness to bear the punishment and the consequences for your sin, those are the signs of true godly grief and repentance. That's where assurance comes from. Given what I just read, do you understand why I can say, I think I'm saved. I'm pretty sure I'm saved. But then there's 2020. And I hope and pray by His grace and mercy that He sticks me to the table. I hope and pray by God's grace and mercy that I'm this guy. That I'm true. That I'm not just collecting statues. I hope and pray by God's grace and mercy that He'll take a foolish and weak like me to confound the wise. I encourage you to be assured, but be assured in the right things. And buy the right things. I'll leave you with a quote. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. 
because you might dismiss it. <laughs> He's a godly man, I'll tell you that. It was in his will in 1564. It says, in the name of God, I, I'll tell you later, <laughs> servant of the word of God in the church of Geneva, these sort of words that you're about to hear from this dude are the sort of words that I, I mean, I feel like this guy is reading my mail. So if you want to know where I stand when I say I think I'm saved, this is where I stand. Servant of the word of God in the church of Geneva. You might be on some clues there. Weakened by many illnesses. Thank God that he's shown not only mercy toward me, his poor creature, and has suffered me a partaker of his grace to serve him through my work. I confess to live and die in this faith, which he's given me, inasmuch as, listen, I have no other hope or refuge than his predestination upon which my entire salvation is grounded. <laughs> That's my only hope. He says, I embrace the grace which he has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I accept the merits of his suffering and dying that through them all my sins are buried, and I humbly beg him to wash me and cleanse me with the blood of our great Redeemer as it was shed for all poor sinners so that I, when I shall appear before his face, may bear his likeness. This dude's flinging himself out of the boat in his will. After a lifetime of ministry, Listen to these final words. It says, Moreover, I declare that I endeavored to teach his word undefiled and to expound Holy Scripture faithfully according to the measure of grace which he has given me. In all the disputations which I led against the enemies of the truth, I employed no cunning or any sophistry, but have fought his cause honestly. But, oh, my will, my zeal were so cold and sluggish that I know myself guilty in every respect. Without his infinite goodness, all my passionate striving would be only smoke. Indeed, the grace itself which he gave me would make me even more guilty. Listen to this last sentence. Thus, my only confidence is that he is the father of mercy who has such desires to reveal himself to such a miserable sinner. That's a dude that's eaten this book. Every verse. Cover to cover. There's no flowery beds of ease. Assurance doesn't come from something written in the front of your Bible. It comes from today and tomorrow and 2009 and 2030 and your last breath Fighting to be at the table. Being clingy and needy and desperate for Christ and the finished work of the cross. Realizing that your only hope for salvation is a work completely outside of you. Man. If you're wrestling with stuff, I'm approachable, the elders are approachable. It's right there. All over that Bible. I hope you see us approachable and gentle, loving, listening. The truth is hard sometimes. It does violence to what you've been taught. Not always, but often. I just urge you to let this book shape how you think, not the other way around.
not mutilate this book by what you think it ought to say. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that this people will find our assurance in the daily pursuit of you, trusting that you are able, trusting that you will save your own, that you will not lose any of your own. Lord, I pray that we'll be characterized as we, when we wrong you, when we defy you, when we bring shame upon you in your name and your people, that we'll be characterized by running to your people, not fleeing your people. I pray that you'll see in us earnestness. I pray that you'll see an eagerness to clear our names. I pray that you'll see a fear of the Lord. I pray that you'll see zeal. I pray that you'll see longing to be reconciled. Lord, I pray that you'll even see a people that are eager to take the punishment and consequences of our sin. If that's what it means to reconcile with you. Lord, we are so thankful that the saving work is something completely outside of us. And it's the finished work of Christ in an empty tomb. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.